Good morning and welcome to Chanel. We are so glad that you're with us today. I want to let you know of a, the next sermon series that we're going to be doing is kind of all Thanksgiving food related. And so to pull that off, I would like a, some help from some of you. So if you have a recipe for an apple pie or bread, talk to me. Uh, I want to use that in, in the next sermon series that we're going to do. It's going to be fun. Uh, you will not have to be on stage. There will not be like a, a oven up here. We're not doing anything like that. Uh, but if, if you can either make an apple pie or bread, please talk to me because I would love to use you in the next sermon series. Uh, so this morning, uh, I, I want to tell a story uh, that is going to be a bit awkward uh, because it, it's about uh, a job that I didn't get. I want to go ahead and say I'm not looking for a job Craig, unless I need to be. Um, but I'm not looking for a job. And it got to a point to where after the visit, they were like, okay, we're just going to let you know that it's between you and another person. And I was like, okay, like, let me know, I guess. And if you've ever been a part of a process like that, the, the longer the time goes in between that conversation and the next one, you kind of realize like, okay, they've clearly decided to go with the other candidate. And I remember it was a Saturday, which is a great time to call somebody and tell them they didn't get the job. Um, but it was a Saturday afternoon. We were outside, and we were playing with the kids, and I got the call, and they just said, hey, man, just want to let you know we're going in a different direction, but, but thanks for interviewing. We appreciate it. And I did the thing where I was like, oh, you know, thanks for the opportunity. Glad to have the conversation. You know, blessings on kind of this person. Hope he fails. Um, <clears throat> but... I'm a real person, you know. Uh, now, I'll say this because in, in processes like this, if you've applied for a job, you often put references on there. And to me, like, that's the worst part of the whole process is when you don't get the thing that you think you wanted, having to call those people that went to bat for you and say, hey, just updating you, know, just updating you, didn't work out, uh, I'm good. And so I started to do that process. And in that process, I start calling my references. I'm like, hey, just letting you know, I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. Didn't get it. I'm moving on. If you've ever been in a situation like that, um, where you're, you have a group of people that care about you, what we often do is sometimes we just have to say something, right? Sometimes we just have to insert maybe uh, a Bible verse, maybe a story, a remedy, instead of just being like, hey, I'm sorry. I know you're in pain. I know this stinks, but I'm sorry. And what one of my friends did was they sent me this verse here. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'm going to be honest with you. This made me mad. I didn't like this. Just told this person that this bad thing happened, this thing that I, I thought I wanted didn't work out. And yet, you send me a Bible verse. What bothered me was there, there's better Bible verses for this, right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, to carry one another's burdens. Uh, Romans 12, 15, that rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So I was already bothered by their lack of biblical scholarship. But the fact that they decided to throw this verse at me in this moment, it, it made it worse. Like, I'm supposed to be okay and push away my feelings because this Bible verse tells me that good will come out of it. If we're being real, we've all been in seasons like that. Where something terrible happens, something doesn't go the way that we want it to, and we're given these verses when we're in pain. And sometimes they fit. 
Like sometimes we can see a verse like this and say, okay, I can see how God is working through the pain. I can see how God is working through the difficulty. But often what we do is we remove them from their context, like we've talked about over the last several weeks. And instead of applying the full application of what's going on around them, and we do that, we lessen the value of this passage. And so this morning, I want to spend some time in Romans chapter 8. But to do that, it's important that we kind of do a very quick recap of Romans. And by quick, I mean very quick. Romans is a letter that Paul writes to the the church of Rome in a way that he doesn't with a lot of the other letters that he does. Um, Romans is really Paul's summation of the gospel. He's writing to a group of people that he's never met before. And it's kind of like, if, if you need to know what the Bible is about, if you need to know who God is, what it looks like to follow Jesus, I'm going to give it to you in 16 chapters. That's essentially on the surface what Paul is doing through Romans. And so in Romans 1, he establishes this concept that, that we are all without excuse. But in chapter 4, he talks about through faith we are made righteous. In Romans chapter 5, we find peace with God. And in Romans 7, that the battle of sin uh, against sin is great. But the hope that we have as followers of Jesus is where Paul begins in Romans chapter 8. Again, that was quick, very fast. My Bible professors are rolling over right now thinking, why did you just do that so fast? So I wanted to get us to Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 is about hope. It's about recognizing that the present suffering that we maybe are experiencing doesn't compare to the future glory that God has in store for us. But again, if we just remove these verses out of their original context, we may overlook that. And so Paul begins this section with a powerful reminder that those in the Spirit have been free. He writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It's a strong way to start a chapter. Especially when we've just talked about that the weight of sin is great. Paul's saying, through the Spirit, you have been set free. You are made new through Christ, and it's through the Spirit that this has happened. But Paul doesn't stop there. But as he continues in verse 5, that if you live in accordance with the Spirit, that we have our minds set on what the Spirit desires, you are in tune with God. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Paul is talking about a new way of living. A new way of approaching life. There is so much disunity in the church of Rome that Paul is saying, you've got to all get on the same page. You know that how you are supposed to be in tune with the Spirit? That's how you should be in tune with one another. There should be harmony and unity in this congregation, even though there is not. But again, Romans is written by Paul, but it's written by Paul while he is in prison and he is suffering. And Paul starts alluding to this idea that there there may be something beyond freedom. In verse 14, Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are called the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Paul is alluding to something uh, about that people who are 
dysfunctional. Maybe that they are, they're no longer unified together. They are looking for a relationship, something deeper, something with meaning and something with purpose. And this idea that you have a relationship with God would have been appealing to people who felt disconnected, disjointed. And so Paul says that this spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Here we we must be reminded of the context. We must remember that Paul is writing this letter to the first century church and, and maybe not to Bryce in Arkansas in 2023. And if we remove the context that Paul is writing from prison, that Paul is writing while he is suffering, we remove the intent. See, Paul is actually introducing something here that is fascinating and beautiful. Paul is introducing the idea that we are made to be partners with God in creation. You remember in Genesis chapter 1 where we are told that we are made in the image of God. God's image bearers are made to reflect his purpose in this world and reflecting the praises and prayers of the world back to God. We have a purpose. We have a function. And Paul is saying, because, that you, because you have that relationship with God, that is how you are called to live. That is what you are called to do. I mean, this is a sermon that Paul is giving us. He's hitting all the high notes. The churches would say, amen, let's go, Paul, let's do, I mean, like, he is leaning into this language that you were called to do something greater, that you were called to live with purpose. And it's that freedom that we receive in the Spirit that allows us to live this way. And this is how we know that Paul is talking and coming from a context of suffering. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I mentioned earlier that this this whole section, chapter 8 to me, is about Paul recognizing the present sufferings the pain, the hurt, maybe even the physical ailments that we have, the, the, the present sufferings that we endure do not compare at all to the future glory that God has in store for us. And so Paul moves forward with this idea of groaning of creation. Paul writes in verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been, brought, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. When Paul starts writing about this idea of groaning of creation, here Paul acknowledges that pain is present in the world, that suffering, that sadness, you fill in the blank that we endure. This is one of those verses and those those references that Paul makes that reminds us that we are not alone. That as we suffer, as we endure pain, that God has not abandoned us in our suffering. That the Spirit hears us and suffers alongside with us. And Paul references this redemption of our bodies, a future blessing or restoration that we have our hope grounded in. And so Paul continues, for in this hope we are saved, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? You're inching towards Christmas. I don't know if you've ever done something where your kids ask for a toy that they already have. That's, that's ridiculous. You would never hope for something that you already own. But Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
See, you've been made a child of God. Therefore, you live in the promises and those blessings and those future hopes as well. But Paul further cements this, that we are not alone in the ideas that we see here in these next verses in verse 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless wordless groans. Again, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, you may feel alone and abandoned. But Paul is reminding us that God has not abandoned us, that the Spirit is with us, walking with us through these sufferings, through these pains. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now before we dive a little bit deeper into that, I want to take you to the 1970s. An appropriate place to go when we're looking at Romans chapter 8. I was not alive in the 1970s, but from my Googling this week, it was a wild time. Uh, A lot of fun was had in the 1970s, particularly in the basketball world. I want to share a little bit about the St. Louis Spirits. Uh, I like to give credit where credit was due, and Johnny Tollett reminded me of this story. Um, Johnny actually said, I don't know how long you're going to do this thing that you're doing, but I've got a story for you. I thought, thank you, Johnny. And so Johnny and I had talked just briefly about the St. Louis Spirits. The St. Louis Spirits were an ABA basketball team. I think, Rob, just play the the clips behind me, because I want to show you while I talk how cool these guys were. 1970s, cool hat, cool jacket. But in the ABA, they were dunking in a way the NBA was not at this point in history. Watch just a little bit of these clips. Now what you're seeing in the background is, again, the St. Louis Spirits, the ABA basketball team from the 1970s. Um, what, you, what you're also seeing, if you're looking at the crowd, is not a lot of people at these games. Uh, that's an important detail in this story because... Around the late 1970s, the ABA began to realize that they weren't making any money. Uh, It was actually not great uh, because people were not going to these games. Yeah, we can just switch back to this. So in the late 1970s, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, approaches four of the remaining ABA teams and says, we would like to buy a few of you. This is where we get the Indiana Pacers, the new... uh, the New York Nets, a few of these teams come out from the ABA. But there's also a few teams that just won't go away, particularly the Kentucky Colonels. Uh, They were bought out by the NBA for about $3 million. But the remaining teams, one being the St. Louis Spirits, the NBA approached and said, we would like to give you $1 million to stop existing, Uh, which is kind of a rough, tough pill to swallow if you think about it. Just stop doing you. Here's a million dollars. What's super interesting is that two of the teams did it. They said, fine, we'll take your check and we'll go away forever. But not the St. Louis Spirits, not these guys. This team actually goes away. Um, But these two particular guys, the Silna brothers. The Silna brothers look at the NBA and then say, no, we're not going to go away just with a check. We want something. And that's where they write the words in perpetuity. Now, in the late 1970s, the NBA was not what it is today. 
where like, if you turn on your television, you're going to see an ad for you know, the Lakers versus the Nuggets. Like You're not going to see, you wouldn't have seen that in the late 1970s. But the Silna brothers believed that eventually you would. And so what the Silna brothers said is, we don't want your check. We would like a small portion of the television rights in perpetuity. Now again, the NBA could not see, here's a spiritual connection, the future glory that would come out of television rights. But the Silna brothers did. They thought, they saw Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and they thought, man, this is going to be on TV, and it's going to really make a lot of money. And so what they decided to do was, I think it's around 1.7% of the NBA's television rights. At this point, they no longer own a basketball team. What they have is this future hope. They have like 1.7% of the television rights of the NBA in perpetuity. It is estimated that in 2014, that the Silna brothers had made over $800 million from this television deal, and they never owned a team. That is bonkers to me. $800 million didn't own a single team. And that was with the buyout that they did because the NBA became so sick of giving these two guys money for not even owning a team. I use these two cool dudes from the 1970s to bring up this point of that they saw a present situation and said, man, hey, I think that in the future there's something in store for us that may be more rewarding. There will be a future glory in in their context with money, with these television rights. If we just hold on. Yeah, they're shutting down our league. Yeah, they're telling us not to exist. But if we just stay the course and we do what we believe in, we believe that the television rights are worth something, there will be a greater glory in store for us later on. And again, these two dudes, David and Ozzy, make over $800 million dollars from the NBA without ever owning an NBA basketball team. And so Paul, and here's a connection. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We've talked a, a lot about this idea of sonship, about being in, in connection and in harmony with the Spirit, but also recognizing that God has called us to be a part of his family. God has called us to be a part of something bigger than what we realize or maybe can understand in this world. And so Paul is giving a little bit of that language here in this verse. But Paul is also referencing this point of that you may be enduring a difficult season right now. Things may not be good. You may be suffering in your family. You may be suffering at work. Maybe there's something physically that's going on with you. But what Paul is saying is that God will take that bad thing and he will give you a future glory. Life is not easy. That's never been a promise from God, but God has promised to be with us, to heal us, and to restore us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is about being reminded of the future blessings that are promised today as we suffer. And the ultimate goal, what what that good is, is making us like Jesus. Throw away what we understand as good and view it in how God intends it to be viewed. That our definition of good in this context should literally be understood as that we are being made in the image and likeness of Jesus. And in this way, all things that happen in our life have a purpose as Christians to be more like Jesus. 
And so when Paul concludes this section here in verse 29 and 30, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul concludes a powerful chapter by bringing to mind you're not alone. You may endure pain and suffering in this world, but there is a future glory that God has already prepared for you because you are a part of God's family. Let's stand and sing together.